so you all weren't here last week to see it, but at the 7.30 service, our reader, Douglas Young, went rogue on us. So we had chosen a reading from Deuteronomy. It was pretty you know, normal. It was about the joys of obeying God. But Douglas would have none of it. He had prepared and was dead set on reading what is the other option for us to choose, which was a fiery reading from the prophet Amos. The prophet in that reading is declaring Israel's doom because it's out of whack with God's call for justice. And when he's told to go back home to Judah, this herdsman and dresser of sycamore trees tells them they're all going to die. Your land will be taken and there'll be no more. Now, if you know Douglas, if you can imagine him reading it, it felt like we had Amos in the room. But his reading got me thinking about the prophets and especially about Amos. And after some digging, I learned that Amos was the first of the prophets in the Bible, which surprised me. Because his book is later on, it follows the more familiar and the more quoted prophets like Isaiah and Ezekiel. But I found out they were written something like a century to a century and a half later. Amos was the first time God chose to speak to his people through a prophet. So this week we had the choice, option of choosing Amos again, and I knew I had to do it. And I know we don't often preach the Old Testament reading, so if you were kind of dozing off or distracted during the Old Testament reading, I encourage you to take a minute to kind of look over it again, reacquaint yourself with it. Oh. Pretty light reading, wouldn't you say? <laughs> Definitely not. This is some of, the, some of the roughest reading. But it opens easily enough. It opens with the image of a, summer, a basket of summer fruit. And one could imagine it filled with Arkansas peaches and slices of Cave City watermelons. It's what appears to be a really comforting, pastoral, warm image. But even that's a trap. The fruit that Amos sees God giving him is it's, it's too ripe. It started to go bad. Now, it's not captured in the English translation, but there's a play on words. The Hebrew word used for basket, kiet, sounds almost like the word used in the following verse for the end, ket. God's handing the, summer, handing the summer basket is actually God declaring the end of Israel. He even says in the next verse, the end has come upon my people Israel. That is the entire theme of the book of Amos. Israel's doomed. Now again, because we're used to the later, but more familiar prophets like Isaiah and Ezekiel, we expect this proclamation of doom to be followed by a call to repent. And this doom will somehow be averted, or, or at least a remnant will be, remain around to be saved. But no, for Amos, doom means doom. No creating a new thing like in Isaiah, no call for salvation like in Ezekiel. And the earlier chapters of Amos had recounted how God had brought destruction among the, uh, other, all the nations for their misdeeds. And here we have Amos, for the first time, turning this power of destruction on the, on the inhabitants of the northern kingdom, on Israel. These are God's people, the ones he chose, he cared for, he led out of slavery into the promised land. They're now doomed. And what's worse, God's chosen not one of his, Israel's fellow countrymen to make this prophecy of doom and despair, but a simple herdsman from nearby Judah, which is Israel's mistrusted neighbor to the south. It's as if in the current day we had a Canadian, or worse, 
a Mexican calling out our imminent doom on cable news. Imagine how that would go over. It's kind of how it did with Amos. And the priests of the temple will tell him to go back to where he's from. They don't want to hear his rants up here in the prosperous, south, uh, prosperous north. We're doing great. We don't need you. But he persists. And that gets us to this week's reading. And it gets at the reason, the single reason for Israel's impending fall. And it's telling that it's not what we'd think it'd be. It's not about sexual morality or, in the current age, women's choice or video games or any of the other supposed hot-button issues that many folks like to see as the source of a country's decline. It's not about that at all. It's about economic injustice. The rich and prosperous elites of Israel have forgotten God's demand to care for the needy. In fact, it even, it's even worse. Israel's 1% haven't just disregarded the poor, they've been taking advantage of them for their own gain. They've weighted the scales to cheat them out of fair payment for their hard-earned harvest. They've tricked them out of their land, forcing them into slavery just to keep shoes on their feet. Economic injustice is the reason for Israel's fall. And remember, this is the first time that God uses a prophet to call out his chosen people in a prophecy of doom. God's going to take control of nature to turn daytime into night. Festivals will be for mourning. Songs will only be laments. This is tough stuff. Now, I imagine one of Amos's buddy pulling him aside, telling him, hey, you've gotten too political. That he needs to just calm down. And hey, one of the merchants he's just accused is a member of the synagogue, so maybe he should not accuse him anymore. But again, Amos persists. Look what he proclaims is in store for a doomed Israel. It's famine. But not just a famine for food or a thirst for water, but a famine from God. At the end of the verse it says, They shall run to and fro seeking the word of the Lord, but they shall not find it. Now it's interesting in our church's catechism at the back of the Book of Common Prayer, we define hell as something like that. It's eternal death and our rejection of God. So it does sound like a famine for the word of God. Israel's doomed to a kind of hell. Economic injustice dooms Israel to hell. The misdeeds of the elites doom an entire nation to separation from the voice of God. Now, admittedly, it's, it's hard not to connect Amos' words with our own country's situation today. We are at a greater point of economic disparity than in any time since the Gilded Age of the late 1800s, and that did not end well. The economic growth of the past 10 years has pretty much benefited only the well-off. The minimum wage is stuck at $7.25 an hour, and it's been stuck there for longer than it's ever been since the national wage was created. Our working poor are forced to work two, three, even six jobs just to scratch by. And instead of lifting up our poor, more often than not, they are vilified in the national consciousness, if they're even seen. Their economic woes are tied to their supposed immorality or laziness, and in a kind of reverse prosperity gospel, their problems are their insufficient faith. And heaven forbid if they are black or brown or an immigrant or an illegal. Now, I realize I'm at risk of hitting this economic injustice thing a little too hard. Like Amos' summer basket of fruit, I could get a little overripe, a little too much. There's always a risk that preaching the God, when preaching the prophets, the preacher becomes a little, well, preaching. So I'm going to pivot. I'm going to go to a place of hope. 
As is often the case, hope is found in the Gospel reading today. Now, I won't spend time debating the merits of Martha's hospitality versus Mary's apparent inactivity, because I'm sure you've heard those sermons before, and if not, we'll have plenty of chance to revisit Mary and Martha in future years. Now, today I want to instead just focus on Mary. While she may seem inactive, she's in fact very busy, and she's doing something very important. She's listening. She sits at Jesus' feet and listens to the word of the Lord. The first thing we should always do is listen for God. We are to listen. Listen to God here in the church, in reading the scripture, in the words of our neighbor, in nature, in everything. We listen. I've said before that all this is God's work, not ours, but we are called to do something. And it starts with listening. Like Mary, we sit at the Lord's feet and listen. What is God telling you right now? This week, a friend sent me an article by Walter Brueggemann. We had just finished a great conversation about economic injustice, inequality, and yes, the prophet Amos. So thank you, Douglas, for this week's obsession. The article ran some 20 years ago in the, in the magazine, The Christian Century, and it's titled, quote, The Liturgy of Abundance, The Myth of Scarcity, end quote. In it, Brueggemann claims that the God's story is always one of abundance, abundance in the garden, abundance in God's promise to Abraham and Sarah and the multitudes they'll parent, more than the stars in the sky, they're told. And it isn't until the Pharaoh in Egypt and out of fear for his kingdom that the myth of scarcity takes control. Warned of a famine, he stockpiles grain to the point that the Israelites are forced to surrender everything to stay alive and become slaves. Scarcity takes over. Until later, once escaped from Egypt, the Israelites' fear for food are met with an abundance of manna from heaven, more than they can eat. Over and over again, God's story is of abundance, and man's myth is of scarcity. Jesus' kingdom of God is a constant story of abundance, of sight restored to the blind, of healing to the sick, of the poor being relieved of their debts. And Brueggemann wonders if conservatives and liberals, instead of always arguing, should instead be united in the common realization that the real issue confronting us is whether the news of God's abundance can be trusted, trusted in the face of our society's story of scarcity. So think about it. What if the church became a place of imagination, an idea hothouse for how God's story of abundance might create a counter-narrative in today's society? What if we imagine that we don't fear that we can't afford the hundreds of thousands of men, women, and children seeking asylum at the border, but instead, what would it feel like to welcome them as we've welcomed millions before? Imagine enough abundance for everyone to be fed in the entire country, in the world, for everyone to have access to health care, for all to be able to afford their families and loved ones. I know it sounds preposterous and unfortunately political, but it's not political. It's gospel. And the gospel is political because it speaks truth to power. That's why Jesus always irritated the 1% of his time. Our most recent prophet, I'd contend, and you might agree, was Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. Right at the end of his life, 
before his assassination here in nearby Memphis, you might know he was organizing a poor people's campaign that sought to bring all of our country's needy, of all races, creeds, and colors, together in a united campaign against the elites. And I know this must have scared the bejesus out of the upper class, both conservative and liberal, because they know that is where true power lives. That's why we constantly seek to divide it. They know and we know if MLK could change the country's direction on civil rights, imagine what he could do for the poor. But we'll never know because he was taken away. His work continued and continues today, but without his prophetic presence, it's lost some steam. We're no Martin Luther King Jr. MLK imagined a world where there is no scarcity, only abundance, enough for all to go around. It wouldn't be easy, and it would require sacrifice from the rest of us, but it would be enough for everyone. Amos's prophecy is a chilling reminder of what happens if we don't care for the least among us in our lives, in our churches, in our social programs, in everything. We will be banished from hearing the voice of God. I invite us instead to, like Mary, take a seat at Jesus' feet and listen to his voice. Listen as he tells us of a world, this world, not the next one, this one, a world of abundance, of God's plan for plenty. He'll debunk man's myth of scarcity. And then after we listen, we go out to work because we've got a lot to do. Amen.